Hi, good morning, everyone, and welcome. This is Sustainable Short Takes and Updates, part of the Seek Sustainable Japan talk show series. I am JJ Walsh in Hiroshima, a sustainability-focused consultant and content creator, and today I am with... Hi, I'm Tova Kinooka. Um, I'm also a sustainability consultant, and I'm based in Yokohama. And today we're going to start with some updates, and then we're going to talk about some issues and topics, and then we're going to end, as usual, with some great book recommendations. Tova, do you want to start us off with some updates about things coming up? Right, thank you. So um, coming up, starting this coming Saturday, we've got the REI, so that's Refugee Empowerment International, Walk on the Wild Side. So this is a virtual walking challenge. It runs from the 5th of March through to the 21st, and it's kind of a virtual journey um, from the Sudan border through to Kakuma Refugee Camp in Kenya. Um, and as you go through the walk, you see lots of uh, sort of virtual landmarks come out up along the way you learn about um you know those communities that you're passing through um so lots of interesting stuff but it's also just a great way to get up get out go and get some fresh air and exercise especially now spring is in the air and uh, and it raises funds for rei projects so they support projects which are really sustainable long term that they're, they're not just sort of throwing money short term at people and, and giving aid that they're dependent on it's actually supporting them to reskill to to learn new things to start their own businesses and things like that so um please join us if you can you can walk run cycle climb ski do it however you want to um and the the funds raised through that will help ensure some really good projects continue to be funded so thank you for that and this is uh, showing the screen for Refugee Empowerment International website right now. Um, it does great work. We had the chance to talk with you and the founder of REI on the talk show series before. We need to have you guys back on and catch up, <laughs> catch up on yeah. all your great work. You yeah, and Jane, Jane Best, right? Jane Best is, yes, yeah, she's the director of REI. Um, that sounds like a, a great initiative to do the walk this week. This weekend, I'll be in Chiodi um, having a little birthday treat, going to the Ia Valley and staying in one of the renovated, old, beautiful, traditional Japanese uh, houses. So I'm really excited to so go and stay there and lots of walking. So I will join, <laughs> Perfect. join your event. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we've had uh, Duke of Harajuku join from YouTube, says, Ohio, good morning to you. Thanks for joining. <laughs> uh, updates for me this week on the talk show on 3-3, which I believe is Women's um, Girls' Day. Um, we have Elizabeth M Mueller. Uh, she founded Be Here Asia. She is a travel uh, guide and agent. She has a lot of great travel ideas for Japan, uh, which are more sustainable and off the beaten track. So we're going to have a Travel Thursday talk, usually Travel Tuesday. This week, Travel Thursday. <laughs> Please join us for that. And then on Friday, we have returning champion, one of our most popular speakers on the series so far, the amazing Asby Brown. 
Uh, we're going to talk and continue the conversation we started last year about his book, Just Enough. Now, Just Enough talks about a lot of the ideas from the Edo Jidai, from the Edo period, which, uh, of course, Japan was going through a really hard time, was closed off to the world. But a lot of great innovation came out during that time and very circular economy mm. uh, activities in terms of no waste, reusing everything. Um, so there's some great insights. And the new paperback version of his book is released in April. So it's kind of a preview of how a lot of these ideas, this book was published ages ago, how a lot of these ideas are still very relevant and need to be brought back and great time to discuss it. Brilliant. Looking forward to that. Yeah. Join us then. Uh, now you went to an interesting uh, conference, Sustainable Brands. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, thank you. So Sustainable Brands um, started in the US and uh, it's a, now a global organization. They have big conferences in person normally. Um, sort of in a number of cities around the world. And uh, they've been active in Japan for quite a few years now. And so I've attended previous um, in-person conferences. It's usually two days, very full-on packed agenda with panels, breakout workshops and discussions, um, great networking and a kind of uh, activ activation hub where they've got uh, sort of booths from lots of different companies talking about what they're doing sustainability wise and um, the little startups as well as the the big corporates as well um so in the past it's always been very very well attended huge last year it went fully virtual um this year was hybrid so they had the virtual um conference going on but we were there in person on day one and uh, there was some this is uh, one of the um, academic uh, leaders on the Sustainable Brands Japan team talking about SDGs awareness and how that's grown. And it was fascinating. You can see, I think, the first year he uh, they were measuring it was 2018. And awareness when they were talking to people was actually pretty low, even though it was already three years after you know the SDGs had started. Um, and now we're looking at 84.2%. I mean, all of a sudden, that level of awareness has absolutely shot up so that was really encouraging to see um it was that uh, there were a lot fewer people than we'd seen in previous years i did feel um rather sorry for the companies that had got their booths there and were ready to talk to people um the, this is the opening and ad opening address the keynote address and this is my friend i'm very fortunate to call her my friend ibun hirahara who is an incredible young leader in Japan. Um, she has been working in sustainability basically ever since she graduated. Um, and she and one of her business partners, Taichi Chikawa, um, as well as being One Young World alumni, that's where I met them, um, produced a book um, last year around uh, getting stories, um, people's personal stories of diversity um, and challenges and, uh, you know, SDG related um, projects that they're working on. And they they got a voice from every country around the world. It was a massive thing to coordinate this. And it's published in English and Japanese. So perhaps I'll talk about that book next week. Um, but uh, yeah, it was wonderful to see good, you yeah. there. And I think one thing that was really interesting this year, in previous years in sustainable brands, certainly the, the major focus has been on environmental issues. This year, there was a huge shift and there was a, a lot of focus on 
social issues, particularly equality and how that ties into the, you know, the, the climate um, issue and everything else. So it was in, really interesting to see how that balance had shifted and the awareness that these things are deeply interconnected and need to be approached together rather than solving one first and then moving on to the next one. Because they're so interconnected, as we always say, uh, people, planet, profit, you cannot really separate these three. They are all connected in many ways. Um, But that's so great to see that that raise an interest and raise Mm -hmm. an awareness. I was just looking at an old Japan Times article from 2020 yesterday, Mm -hmm. and they talk about uh, there's only 50% of municipalities around Japan who have an interest in SDGs. That's in 2020. Mm -hmm. So I hope, based on this information, that there is more awareness, there is more interest. Let's start with interest. Uh, There is more interest around Japan, and then it spreads to awareness and greater understanding, and then putting it into action. That's the aim, right? Absolutely. And the overall theme this year was regeneration, so going beyond just the minimum needed to reduce bad impact. And there was one... one, um, keynote uh, speaker in the morning plenary session that talked about uh, the fact that being less bad does not mean you're good. <laughs> it's actually, we've got to go beyond that and look at how can we regenerate um, our economies, our environment, our social you know, structures and communities, especially coming out of the, the COVID situation. Yeah. I was just thinking about that yesterday. Um, there are so many expressions uh, that that say in Japanese or English, mm-hmm. uh, the lesser evil or or better than usual, yeah. right? But we need to go beyond that. We need to be like, this is much better than usual and this is the norm. Exactly. You know, like just a, a damaging a little bit less. That's, yeah. that's not the aim anymore. Exactly. Right? Well, the lesser be- evil is still not very attractive as a prospect, is it? It doesn't get people motivated and wanting to, to do it. So uh, I think if we can go beyond that to say no evil at all, let's let's be you know net positive, um, like we were talking about last week, and actually look at how we can give more than we take, then, then that's an attractive prospect. Yeah. Um, speaking of lesser evils, uh, you pointed out that the IPCC has a, a brand new report out, uh, the AR6, the sixth uh, synth- synthesis report uh, talking about climate change in 2022, uh, just came out. So Tova and I haven't had a chance to dive into it yet, but we'll put the link below. Yeah. Worth taking a look and we'll talk more about some of the key takeaways next week. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's not a light read, but they do break it down quite nicely. If you go to the, the website on the link there, you'll find there are sort of summaries aimed at policymakers, summaries on the technical side so you don't have to read the whole report you can actually just sort of get a lot of uh, information still from those depending on what line of work you're in and what's relevant yeah definitely um going on to another heavy topic but something we should we should know about today mm-hmm. uh, march 1st is uh and a remembrance day for the nuclear uh what do you the nuclear weapons test in the Marshall Islands? And a guy that a journalist I interviewed in the series, John Lutman, wrote this really interesting article today about low yield nuclear weapons, which actually poses a greater threat of nuclear war. And it discusses 
all of the issues uh, today, we should remember the heroes and survivors uh, who were outspoken about what was happening to them from the nuclear tests in the Marshall Islands, how they were used as human experiments. It's a really horrible part of our history, which we have to own yeah. and accept that that happened and remember it. And as the journalist uh, who was writing a really interesting thread on this today, he's a human rights lawyer, Julian Aguan, and he's in Guam. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about um, all the issues and giving lots of information and links, as well as John. But his main takeaway is... And then after reading, listening, learning, do not look away. Yeah. And I think this, this is a really important idea for something like nuclear weapons, but also for climate change, yeah. for huge problems that we're having around the world. Yeah. It, it is overwhelming, right? Um, but find a way you can listen to the stories, you can understand more about what happened and don't look away. Try to find ways that you can proactively move forward. Um, so for example, think about who you're electing into government and how do they um, feel about nuclear weapons or you know things that you really care about. Um, he mentioned Katie Porter in the US. She has been one of the only people in US government to raise these issues mm -hmm. and to talk about uh, paying uh, people in the Marshall Islands for what happened to them as test subjects uh, years ago. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, representation matters, right? Who we elect to government matters. And as an individual, that is something you can do, right? as well as learn about it. Absolutely. We're, we're never entirely helpless in these things. I mean, some of these problems, like you say, they seem so huge and so overwhelming and perhaps so far removed from our daily lives that it's, it's easy to just read it and go, oh, you know, that, that's terrible and then move on to the next thing and, and not give it any more thought but um that that's how these things perpetuate so we really do need to sit down and have hard conversations and think about the consequences of our own actions um and that that goes you know for, for individuals as well as within um organizations we spend a lot of time talking about this about you know understanding the the butterfly effect right of your actions out beyond and how you know, a vote here or there or an action or, or inaction, you know, in various different areas of our, our lives or work can actually have consequences that we don't think about at the time. So, uh, yeah. Really and important. in... In John's article, he references ICANN, so the International Campaign to End Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and they did an estimate of what would happen if one of these low-grade nuclear weapons were uh, launched in, uh, in any major city around the world and how many casualties would be there immediately. And then, of course, radiation casualties yeah. and the after effect, but also talking about how it would completely dehabilitate any kind of medical reaction or emergency mm -hmm. response and how we understand that so well now during coronavirus, yeah. that even during something like a pandemic of a disease, um, we have overrun hospitals. We we are losing our ability to function as an economy. Yeah. So, you know, thinking about even a low-grade nuclear weapon being used 
in Europe because there is a conflict with a nuclear power happening right now in the Ukraine. Yeah. Um, these are things that are really important to at least know about and know the past and hopefully know that we don't want to do that in the future, right? Exactly, exactly. It's a conscious conscious choice to be aware and then to take action. Yeah. Mm. Uh, let's talk about education, because I think uh, talking about knowing things from the past is definitely connected to education. Very much so. Uh, you, have a, you have a great example uh, from the Phoenix House International yep. School. Can you tell us about this project? Right. So Phoenix House International School in Tokyo is a, a fairly new school, um, and they've got a really great holistic approach to um, education. And I, I saw this come up on my, my Facebook feed from them. So their year six pupils, as part of their, their science project, have been going out and measuring local biodiversity. But they're not just doing it just for themselves by the school. They're actually then feeding that data into the local um, sort of scientific community so that they, you know, it's it's helping the research. They can actually see that they're able to contribute to that, which is obviously very exciting and motivating for the students, very helpful for the scientists, getting additional data on biodiversity that's out there. Um, and so I, I just love this example of education but actually with a real application, right? Not, not just learning for the sake of it or, or learning concepts or theories, but actually this is useful. They're sharing it with local ecologists, increasing knowledge of biodiversity across Tokyo. Fantastic. And look at all the data spots they were able to add. You know, that that's helpful stuff. And it helps them understand that this kind of research has a purpose um, and then can be used to you know, create positive impact in the world. And so I thought there was a great example of the sort of public-private um, and education and uh, scientific community working together. Yeah, and making it so applicable to their everyday yeah. and their reality of their experience. I think uh, we are so skeptical of information we see online, mm. and especially young people. Um, they have grown up with a lot of very clever marketing that's not actually true. Yeah. Um, so they're very skeptical of what information they see online, mm -hmm. and they're not used to going to legitimate news sources or paying for news, which is becoming a problem, yeah. right? Um, so getting students involved in actually getting the data themselves, seeing how it works, seeing how it applies to choices they make mm. in how they are consumers, I think is really key yeah. to developing a greater awareness of these big problems. Right? Absolutely. And it also just puts a big concept like biodiversity loss right it puts that into their world their context that they're familiar with because we can talk about these things um and i think it's often hard for people to make the connections that well you know well i live in a big city it's you know biodiversity isn't really a thing we think about here we think about jungles and forests and maybe the big parks if we're thinking about biodiversity but actually it's something that is all around us um alarmingly it's declining very fast but you know if they can recognize that actually this is not just about going to a big park and seeing different types of birds and things like this this is walking down our street what are we seeing what are we not seeing um how is that you know how are the populations changing it's really putting it into their context which all of a sudden gets people engaged sort of at the heart level as well as just intellectually at a concept level 
Absolutely. I hope they also get out to the rivers and get out to the beaches and do an analysis of how much plastic pollution they see along yes. the way. What kind of pollution? Where does it come from? Am I buying that pollution? You know, like putting those things yeah. together yeah. as well for ocean plastics, which is such a big yeah. issue uh, in Japan as well as everywhere around the world. Um, now you have a product to recommend. It sounds really exciting. Tokyo Vegan Gyoza. Tell us about it. It looks amazing. Right. Well, um, this is something that sort of came up on my radar uh, last week out of the blue. Um, we're actually going to be speaking to the, the founder of Tokyo Vegan Gyoza, who is a sort of serial entrepreneur. He's actually a tech entrepreneur and um, works in Silicon Valley. Um, a lot of the time and sort of half based in Tokyo as well. But he's founded this Tokyo Vegan Gyoza um, organization. It, they, I've just ordered some, they haven't arrived yet, so I'm very much looking forward to it. But I've already had an email with some recipe ideas, different things I can do with my vegan gyoza. So I'm very much looking forward to <clears throat> A, tasting them and also finding out about uh, finding out more about the, the background story. So once I've spoken to him, I'll be able to share more on that. Yeah, interesting. Uh, this is something I always recommend to any travel business or travel destination. If you want to appeal to international visitors, especially the inbound travel market, mm -hmm. uh, you have to have at least one plant-based option. And this is often a real hurdle in a country yep. where everything is made with a fish-based soup stock or a meat-based uh, base of the, of the dish. Mm -hmm. And um, it's always a big hurdle. Like what, what could we make? Well, we don't want to change the soup stock. We don't want to change the dashi. Well, when we have these organizations that are making something which is tasty and filling and satisfying and using plants, it makes a big difference. Um, you're not yeah. going to only be giving them a side salad and expecting them to be happy, right? <laughs> um, you're not only going to be making something that doesn't have a, a soup or a stock or anything and expecting them to be happy, right? And right. when you have a plant-based option, everybody can eat it, even meat eaters. So you've yes. got an option for everybody, right? Exactly. So for a lot of people, even if they're, you know, there, there are many different reasons, right, for choosing not to eat meat. So I think, um, you know, for health-based reasons as well, uh, it's great to have that as an option. So, Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think it's time for us to talk about books. I will start. Uh, this is a book my husband gave to me a couple of years ago, Overstory by Richard Powers. And it's really interesting. It follows the lives of different people in connection to beautiful trees um, that they've grown up with or have been around for generations through their family history. Um, there's a, a father who took a picture of a tree near their house every week every month for 30 years or something so there's so many interesting stories I feel like a lot of it is based on reality but even if it's not it really helps you think about um, trees mm -hmm. and the long life and long legacy of trees in terms of our legacy and our lives and I, I love that human to nature connection yeah. Um, in the book, it's awesome. <laughs> Brilliant. Now you have a great uh, book recommendation. 
and tell us about it, Mio the Beautiful. Right, so a uh, very different topic. So this is written by Kinota Braithwaite, who is based here um, in uh, Fujisawa, just along the road from me in Yokohama. And um, this is a book he wrote um, for his daughter, actually, or in response to the experience his daughter had. So she's biracial, um, is at a, a normal Japanese school and was being bullied um, because of the color of her skin. And so he wrote this book as an educational tool um, for teachers to be able to engage in students with the conversation around skin color, around differences and being accepting and, you know, enjoying those differences rather than seeing them as something to be fearful of or, you know, to, to laugh at. So it's a beautiful book. It's beautifully illustrated. It's very, very simple. And I thought it just opens up a, a really... Uh, it's a great way to open up that conversation with children, right? Particularly, um, my son's about to to start uh, shogako, so um, elementary school uh, next month. So we've just been getting all the the gear and ready, and I'm very conscious of the fact that he's different <laughs> to most of the other kids in the school. Um, my daughter also experienced some bullying when she was in elementary school here as well because she was different and not completely Japanese. So it's a topic very close to my heart and one I think that Japan needs to engage with perhaps more. And this book is a, a wonderful tool for doing that. Yeah, fantastic. It looks really interesting. And even though like my kids are not well, not considered biracial, right? Because their their dad is from England, their mom is from America, but they're growing up in Japan and speaking Japanese. Um, but they had a lot of similar issues um, and not feeling, not feeling like they were being discriminated, but feeling like they weren't being treated as equals mm -hmm. from the the teachers or yeah. that atmosphere, which which really infects a lot of the kids. The kids, other kids, pick up on that. Yeah. Um, luckily, we were at very good schools, and a lot of other international families were there. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, really depends area by area. And I think when we're talking about the attitude of the government uh, in terms of closed borders yeah. and things we've had in Japan for a long time, it, this kind of, it infects the public opinion yeah. about outsiders, Very right? Much. And even kids, even kids born and raised in Japan are considered outsiders, yeah. you know, and I remember my daughter being quite upset uh, in elementary school when someone called her a foreigner. And she said, but I was born and raised yeah, in Japan, yeah, just like you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. So it's, it's great to see that this book is published and hopefully mm -hmm. it'll start a lot of great conversation and more awareness and understanding yeah, of the issues. So. Yeah, no, it's it's a lovely way to engage. I think to coming at it not from a you're you're being wrong or taking you know sort of from a, a place of kindness. I think and a place of curiosity and understanding. And um, the, the book approaches it in that way and and helping kids to understand the the impact of the words they use of their actions. You know whether they're including somebody in their games or not, or their conversations or they're not. Um, and I think, you know, kids are so open to this if they're given the opportunity to, to talk about it and understand that, you know, if they use this word, that's hurtful to somebody. And, but if nobody points that out, they don't know. It's not that they're necessarily being malicious. They just don't know the potential impact of that on other people. So I think it really, you know, it's 
the earlier we can start those conversations, the better. And it's, you know, not, not just for people who are technically non, you know, sort of traditional Japanese as well, but also that there's a whole lot of diversity within the Japanese population that also, um, you know, the, the same mindset shift is, is, you know, important and necessary as well. So great way to engage, I think. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we we actually had our kids in in public school, public Japanese school until junior high. Mm -hmm. And then we noticed um, there was just the Western style of education, especially from junior high, where there's a lot more independence. Mm. Uh, the example that you mentioned earlier about going out and doing an independent right. field work study, for example, um, it was lacking. Mm -hmm. in the Japanese education system. It was more uh, the teachers, the boss, the teachers, the expert, you listen to what the teacher says, you just regurgitate that mm -hmm. for your learning. And we were kind of uncomfortable with that. <laughs> so we were seeking out uh, more school opportunities. And we were lucky enough uh, to be able to afford private school where they have uh, more of an international idea of education and independent learning, mm -hmm. which we can say we value highly if our kids are going to have the option to study abroad yeah. in the future. So that was one of our considerations. Yeah. Um, how about in your case, Tova? Similar. So both um, our children have, well, my daughter's now 15. She's in international school now, but she went through the Japanese uh, hoikuen, so daycare system that just the local public one right up to the end of that and then right through uh, Japanese elementary school as well the full six years of that um, which was really important um, I think culturally because that's half her culture we wanted to make sure a you know her language ability was was solid but also that you know this is really important this is part of who she is um, and then for the same reasons as you we moved to an international system um, from uh, junior high school just to get a different uh, approach to learning. But it's interesting in the work I do with corporates, this comes up again and again, that ability to, to think independently, to take initiative, et cetera, that starts in the education system. And so many of the, I mean, the 20 odd years more now that I've been working in, in sort of people development in corporates in Japan, so many of those issues start back in the classroom and the way the education is approached there. There are so many good things about the Japanese education system. It's you know really got a lot of positives as well. But if we can just shift it to be a little more independent, open, allow people to, to think more laterally, I think, rather than, like you say, just being used to receiving information, that's not a helpful approach to take when you're in a company and having to make decisions and solve problems and so on. So, you know, it, it creates problems further down the line. So it'd be great to see, there's been a lot of talk on reforming. Um, we haven't seen a lot of action yet. So it'd be good to see. And I, I think like you mentioned earlier as well, um, women leaders, right? Yeah. Empowering young women to become leaders and accept mm -hmm. leadership roles, that has to start in yeah. education. Very and unfortunately, that was another reason we were not happy with our daughter continuing in the Japanese system. Mm -hmm. You know, in mixed classes, very few girls were being called on. It's, I mean, it happens in the States. It happens yeah. all over. Yeah. But yeah, this yeah. is definitely affecting how our economy is, how our adult life is how we see leaders or not in Japan as females, right? Absolutely. These these are our future leaders and our future politicians and policymakers, et cetera. So yeah, the, the mindset 
needs to be uh, sort of allowed to to flourish early on, I think. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so just to mention, we are talking about women empowerment. Tova and I are still planning uh, to have an online talk on March 21st from 9 to 11, featuring some of the speakers who will be at our in-person conference in May. We still haven't decided the date, um, but thank you all so much for your support and your patience uh, and understanding that it's difficult to have an in-person event still in March. In Japan. And uh, we will do this online kind of preview of the event on the 21st. So please uh, mark your calendars, 9am to 11am on the holiday in Japan, March 21st. Excited about that, Tova? Very much so. Nice way to kick off the holiday, I think. Hearing some, you know, people from different areas of sustainability work talk about, you know, what they're doing. Um, get some excitement going for the main event uh, in May. So, yeah, please do join us for that if you can. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, for joining today. We went a little bit over time. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, we had some people joining us from YouTube today. Nice to see you, Z. Nice to see you, Duke of Harajuku. Uh, please join us again next time. Thank you, everybody. And uh, please subscribe as well. I show my tears to you, I'm stronger I drop the armor, now I'm bolder